0: All right, well, let's open up to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. And I want to begin this morning with a story. When the boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a rushing stream. And he gathered the disturbed water into pools and made them pure and excellent, commanding them by the character of his word alone and not by means of a deed. Then, taking soft clay from the mud, he formed twelve sparrows. It was the Sabbath when he did these things, and many children were with him. And a certain Jew, seeing the boy Jesus with the other children doing these things, went to his father Joseph, and falsely accused the boy Jesus, saying that on the Sabbath he made clay, which is not lawful, and fashioned twelve sparrows. And Joseph came and rebuked him, saying, Why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? But Jesus, clapping his hands, commanded the birds with a shout in front of everyone, and said, Go! Go! Take flight and remember me, living ones. And the sparrows, taking flight, went away squawking. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed and reported it to all his friends. So five-year-old Jesus formed birds out of clay. There's more to the story. And the son of Annas, the scribe, had come with Joseph. And taking a willow twig, he destroyed the pools and drained out the water which Jesus had gathered together, and he dried up their gatherings. And Jesus, seeing what had happened, said to him, Your fruit shall be without root, and your shoot shall be dried up like a branch, scorched by a strong wind. And instantly that child withered. And while he was going from there with his father Joseph, a child running tore into his shoulder. And Jesus said to him, you shall no longer go our way. And instantly he died. At once the people, seeing that he was dead, cried out and said, where was this boy born that his word becomes a deed? And when they saw what had happened, the parents of the dead boy blamed his father Joseph, saying, because you have this boy, you cannot live with us in this village. If you wish to be here, teach him to bless and not to curse. And Joseph said to Jesus, Why do you say such things? They suffer and they hate us. And the boy said to Joseph, If the words of my father were not wise, he would not know how to instruct children. And again he said, If these were the children of the bridal chamber, they would not receive curses. These people shall receive their punishment. And instantly the ones accusing him were blinded but joseph became angry and took hold of his ear and pulled hard and jesus said to him is it enough for you to seek me to find me you have acted foolishly so jesus at 5 years old is certainly not speaking like a 5 year old is killing children striking people with blindness and rebuking his father joseph does that sound right? One more. And when he was about eight years old, and when his father, a carpenter, was making plows and yokes, he received a bed from a certain rich man so that he might make it exceedingly great and suitable. And since one of the required pieces was shorter, and he did not have a measure, Joseph was distressed, not knowing what to do. But the boy came to his father and said, put down the two pieces of wood and align them to your end. Joseph did just as Jesus said to him. And the boy stood at the other end and took hold of the short piece of wood and stretched it. And he made it equal to the other piece of wood. And he said to his father, do not be distressed, but do what you wished. And Joseph embraced and kissed him saying, blessed am I, for God gave me this boy. Now, These stories are complete rubbish, okay? They come from what is known as the Gospel of Thomas. This is an account of Jesus' life written probably at least a century after Christ. The Gospel of Thomas is full of stories like this, interesting to read, clearly made up. Uh, In fact, scholars are almost unanimous that the author must have been a Gentile who was not very familiar with Jewish life, because even the picture of Jewish life given in that gospel doesn't match what we know to be true. The Gospel of Thomas was certainly not written by the Apostle Thomas, and when the early church leaders declared the books they believed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, this was not one of them. Uh, It was not even controversial. No one believed that the gospel of Thomas was spirit-inspired truth. But, you can understand how the gospel of Thomas came about. After all, ever since the days of Jesus, people have wanted to know more about his childhood. Here is the most important, the most famous man who ever walked the earth... And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John tell us so very little about what his life was like as a child. There's always this temptation to want to discover and know more than God has revealed to us. And yet we as Christians trust that the scriptures are sufficient that we do, in fact, know everything that we need to know to live faithful, godly lives as followers of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. There is nothing we need to know about Jesus that has not been revealed to us in the Word of God. That said, the Scriptures are not completely silent on the childhood of Jesus. And so this morning, our next brief passage in Luke 2 Uh, has us thinking about our Lord and what we do know about His childhood. Um, I think you'll find there's much here for us to learn that's not just interesting, but I hope truly helpful to us. So look at Luke 2, verses 39 through 40. Luke 2, verses 39 through 40. And when they, Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Okay, so when Jesus was 40 days old, in keeping with the Old Testament law, Joseph and Mary went from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the temple. And they did everything that the law required of them. Now, having fulfilled those obligations before God, it's time to go home to Nazareth. This is where Joseph and Mary were from. This is where they are now going to take Jesus for the first time. But wait a minute, Justin. There is a glaring problem here. Luke says they return to Galilee, to Nazareth. Matthew tells us something different. He tells us about these wise men that come from the east to Herod in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us how Herod learned about Jesus and sought to kill all the little children, two and under, in Bethlehem. According to Matthew, Joseph and Mary did not go directly to Nazareth, but to Egypt as Joseph was commanded in a dream. And they remained there until Herod died. Then they took Jesus to their home in Nazareth. So how does Luke mention none of that? How do you reconcile Luke saying they went home to Nazareth and Matthew saying they went to Egypt? Well, We need to talk about this now because this is going to be the kind of thing that we will see time and again as we study the Gospel of Luke. There will be occasions when Luke's gospel will tell us something, and there will seem to be discrepancies, even contradictions, between Luke's account and particularly Matthew's account. But there are a few points that, if you'll keep in mind, I think they will help clear up a lot of these issues. So, first of all, all scripture is inspired by God, infallible in the original manuscripts. Reliable, trustworthy, and without any true contradictions. So that's our starting point. This is what Scripture says about itself. So if you're going to take Scripture for what it claims to be, that's what it claims to be. When the early church leaders were recognizing which books belong in the New Testament canon, they were fully aware that there were some differences between the gospel writers. They were also equally convinced that each book was true and faithful and trustworthy. Uh, The Gospel of Thomas was not, so it wasn't included in the canon. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these books had been proven time and again to bear the marks of God's inspiration, of God's authorship. They were considered true, and they were included in the Word of God. Second, unlike Muslims... Unlike Mormonism, we do not believe that our Bible just dropped out of heaven, ready to be believed and obeyed. Rather, we understand that the Bible was written over generations through human authors and that the Holy Spirit was at work in the minds and the hearts and the experiences of those human authors who then composed the Word of God. God is the ultimate author. Nothing is in the Bible that God did not intend to be there. But he worked through the personalities and the experiences and the abilities of real people. And so when you read different books of the Bible, you will find they bear the marks of their human authors. Reading Paul's letters is very different than reading John's letters. John and Paul were very two different kinds of writers. So when it comes to reading the four Gospels, you find that each book was written with some differences in the intended audiences, some differences in the main points that each Gospel writer is emphasizing, and some differences in the way each book is put together. Now third, I am convinced, though this is debated, Uh, that Matthew's gospel was probably not yet written when Luke was writing his gospel. Certainly, I don't think Luke had access to Matthew's gospel when he's writing his. Uh, If you go back to the beginning of our study, we saw how God providentially had Paul and Mark and Luke hanging out together in Rome while Paul was in Roman custody. Okay? Okay very likely Mark had already begun writing his gospel. Mark's gospel, I think, is our earliest and first record of Jesus' life. And so here's a season in which you have Luke and Mark together with Paul in Rome. And so we should not be surprised that when you're reading Luke's gospel, there's a whole lot of Mark in there. You can take Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel and it's Mark's gospel was almost like a sketch outline. It's so short. You ever notice how short Mark is, how he covers things so briefly? It's almost as if Luke started with Mark, and you may make me chuckle, Mark. You need to stop. Um, So it's almost as if Luke started with, with Mark's outline, and then he began to fill in the gaps with the things that he had learned from his investigations. Because Luke told us at the beginning of this gospel that he had done research. That he had gone and tried to discover things and bring them to bear so that we would have an accurate account of the life of Jesus. So it seems that Luke took Mark's gospel, which was written first, and then filled in so much more information with what he had learned from doing his own research. Matthew would later have Mark's gospel. And he would also write his gospel using Mark. Filling in the details, but not from doing his own research and investigation. Matthew was there. Matthew had walked with Christ. Matthew had experienced a lot of these things. And so Matthew takes Mark's gospel and he begins pouring in all of these extra details as he remembers them. Luke never walked with Christ or talked with Christ when Christ was on the earth. Luke was a Gentile in a different land. When Christ was walking the earth. So Matthew, using Mark, wrote from his own experiences. Luke, using Mark, wrote from his own research. Matthew didn't have Luke's gospel. Luke did not have Matthew's gospel. What does all that mean? Well, here's what we're gonna see happen again and again we will find that Luke gives us information. And when we, and and by the way, that information is true. It's all true. And when we bring Matthew's account into view, we will find that Matthew gives us further information that doesn't contradict Luke's account, but gives us a fuller picture. Matthew knows some things that Luke doesn't know. Now, what does this mean in practice? It means we're going to get to Luke 8 one day. And we will find Luke sharing an account that he likely learned from Mark. It's about this man who was possessed by demons running around naked, sleeping among the tombs. And what ends up happening is that Jesus delivers this man by casting these demons into a herd of pigs. Now, when we read that same account from Matthew, we learn that there were two men possessed by demons. How do we explain that? Well, first, there's no contradiction. If there were two men, then there was certainly one, like Luke said. Second, we understand that Luke gave us the information that he had writing from his research. Third, we understand that Matthew was actually there. He was able to remember that there were actually two men involved, even though one might have hogged the spotlight, (laughs) even though one might have been the one that was better remembered. But Matthew gives us a fuller account that helps complete our understanding. So here's the the application of all this. We need all four Gospels. We need all four Gospels. If one Gospel record was all that God wanted us to have and to know, He would have inspired one Gospel record. But God chose to give us four. Each complementing the others. Each helping fill in the gaps. Rather than one witness to Jesus' life, we have four witnesses. Two that were actually there, another writing from what he had learned from Peter and the other disciples, that's Mark, and another who actively researched and interviewed and sought to compose a history, that's Luke. Together, these four witnesses give us the full picture of what God would have us to know about the life of Jesus. So don't just read one gospel account. Don't say, well, John's my favorite, so I'm just going to keep reading John. No, keep reading John. John's wonderful, okay? He's the favorite of many people. But we need them all. Uh, Together we get the full account. So, yes, Luke is right when he says that Mary and Joseph fulfilled the law, and after they fulfilled the law, they went to Nazareth. But Matthew gives us the fuller picture, which he has knowledge of, Luke may not have had knowledge of. Uh, I'm sure Matthew had way more opportunities to have conversations with Mary about what happened when Jesus was a baby than Luke did. So Joseph and Mary left Bethlehem in a hurry. They stayed in Egypt for a few months and then went to Nazareth. I don't think they were in Egypt long. In fact, I think Jesus was born in December of 5 BC and Herod the Great is thought to have died in 4 BC. In fact, Josephus tells us that Herod died before the end of April in 4 BC, which would mean that the birth of Jesus, the coming of the wise men, the move to Egypt, and then the death of Herod and the move to Nazareth all happened in a five to six month period. That these events happened fairly close together. Okay. Enough on that. As we think about verses 39 and 40, we find that verse 40 is really giving us a summary of what really mattered in the childhood of Jesus. And we're not being told stories about birds made from clay. We're being told about Jesus' growth. It's about his physical development, and even more importantly, it's about his spiritual and moral development. Now, before we unpack that statement, let's just remind ourselves what we do know from the Bible about the facts of Jesus' childhood. Yes, Jesus grew in strength and in wisdom, but what was happening in Jesus' life that was a part of his growth? What was happening in Jesus' life that God was using to contribute to Jesus' growth? The secret things belong to the Lord, but what has God told us about the childhood years of our Lord? Well, we know that he grew up in Nazareth. Jesus was a small town boy. And when I say small, I really mean small, right? I pictured the John Mellencamp song, I was born in a small town. Jesus was born in a small town, a little town called Bethlehem. Nazareth was much smaller than Bethlehem. Uh, it was a village with perhaps as few as 400 people. And it was kind of known as a, as podunkville it was it was a very small village on the edge of the hills of galilee it was a truly rural town maybe the nearest thing and this is not to call any of these podunkville but like momire or castalia or Pine. i mean you know the, those kind of places are the kinds of places that that we're thinking about but nazareth did have a reputation we remember nathaniel will later say can anything good come from nazareth so Jesus' early life is lived in a little village with all the pros and the cons of growing up in a little village. In a little village, everybody knows everybody. People have to work together. To, they see each other every day. There are strong bonds that typically form between neighbors. At the same time, it means that everybody's in everybody's business. Right? There's always some kind of local drama that's going on. So Jesus grew up in this small-town atmosphere, in this this very small town, this village atmosphere. Another thing we know from the Bible about Jesus' childhood is that Joseph was alive at least until Jesus turned 12. And that's because in our next account in Luke, we're going to find Jesus at age 12. And Joseph is still in the picture. Uh, So Jesus grew up in a nuclear family home with a father and a mother... Both who helped shape his early life. Uh, Joseph was a tecton. It's often translated as carpenter, but as we've talked about before, it probably refers more to a stonemason. Um, Joseph would not have gotten far working with wood because there are very few trees in Galilee, and all of the homes and the furniture were all made of stone. So as Hebrew scholar James Fleming says, Jesus and Joseph would have formed and made nine out of ten projects from stone, either by chiseling or carving the stone or stacking building blocks. And um, so that was the kind of life that Jesus knew as he watched his father, Father Joseph, uh, working. We know that Jesus had siblings. Uh, When I call Joseph, Jesus' father, I'm not denying the virgin birth. I only mean that that in terms of everyday practical parenting, Joseph was a father to Jesus. But Joseph and Mary had children the natural, normal way, who became Jesus' siblings. In Mark 6, verse 3, the people of Nazareth say, Is not this, the, the, the tecton, the carpenter, the stonemason, the son of Mary and the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judas and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they actually named the brothers of Jesus. And they mentioned that he had sisters as well. In Luke 8 verse 19 we read. Then his mother and his brothers came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. So Jesus grew up in a home where he was the oldest child among brothers and sisters. He grew up in a full family environment. But we also know from both Luke and Matthew that Joseph and Mary were godly parents. uh, That these parents were devoted to the Lord. We've already seen for ourselves their faithfulness in seeking to honor God by keeping God's commandments after Jesus was born. and Therefore, we have good reason to think that Jesus grew up learning from his parents about God. Remember, Jesus was a true boy, a true human being just like you and me. As God, Jesus is everywhere at all times, in all places. Jesus is the Son of God, as an invisible spirit filling all things. But as a man, Jesus became a physical human being, limited in time and space, experiencing all that human beings typically experience. And Jesus had to learn, just like all children have to learn. And so following Deuteronomy 6, we can imagine Joseph teaching the family around the table about the ways of God, about God's ways with Israel. Jesus would have had to learn all about Father Abraham and about Moses, the exodus out of Egypt, the the parting of the Red Sea. Jesus would have learned as a boy about men like Gideon and Samuel and David and Daniel. And of course, he would have learned about Joshua, because that's the name he bore, right? As a devout Jewish family, the the family would have prayed together. They would have talked about the things of God together. They would have been very serious about God's moral commands. Jesus' life would have been marked by the the familiar pattern of six days of work, and then going to the synagogue on Saturday and hearing the Scriptures explained. Each Sabbath, his family would have enjoyed Sabbath rest, keeping the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament, while gathering with others in that little village of Nazareth at the synagogue to worship and to pray. So when Luke tells us that Jesus grew strong and wise, that didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened the way God makes other boys and girls strong and wise. Through godly parenting, Through love and commitment, through the pattern of hard work and rest, learning skills from his parents, regular and committed worship, and all these other wonderful habits that God has taught us to cultivate into our lives. People may look at your life of working hard at your callings, uh, praying, gathering with God's people, ordering your life according to the word of God. And they might say, oh, that's that's a bland life. But no, it is through these mundane looking practices that God is making you wise and that God is growing you up and making you mature and a blessing to others. There is glory in the mundane. And when your heart is in these things and you see with the eyes of faith, they are not mundane at all. For example, being here on Sunday, when you remember that the special presence of God is here, just like he was in the holy holies of the temple, when you remember that the Spirit of God is at work doing supernatural things in our souls as we worship, Suddenly what looks like just another worship service is another worship service. With everything that that entails, with all the glory that that includes, God does the extraordinary through the ordinary things that He's called us to do. We have to mention one other reality about the childhood of Jesus. And this is a distinction that boggles our minds a little bit. Jesus was a sinless child, a sinless child. We we know almost nothing about that dynamic in his family's life. Were the other kids jealous because Jesus never got in trouble? Uh, Did they resent him for being so good? We don't know. I do think we can be confident that God's Spirit was at work in this family, uh, making straight the paths for Jesus to grow up strong and wise. And later, uh, while Jesus is an adult, we will see at least a glimpse of some tension that exists between him and even his mom and his brothers. Nevertheless, we can't help but note that later it will be two of Jesus' brothers who are leaders in the Christian church. It will be two of Jesus' own brothers who grew up with him who are declaring that he is indeed the resurrected Son of God worthy of their worship and their adoration. I think that's pretty astounding. So Luke points us to two areas of growth. He says first that Jesus grew strong. That probably refers to actual physical strength. It could also include moral fortitude, but I think physical strength is is implied. Physical growth isn't more important than spiritual or character growth. But the fact is we are limited in our usefulness to God if we're limited physically. We must never get our priorities out of order. We must never think that physical health matters more than spiritual health. But we also shouldn't fall in the opposite ditch. We must never think that physical health doesn't matter. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul says that bodily training is of some value, though godliness is of value in every way. He isn't saying to ignore bodily training, he isn't saying to to pursue only godliness. No, he's saying bodily training does have some value. It is worth pursuing. It's part of being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And you can imagine Jesus growing strong as he helps his his father in working with the, the stone and being a, becoming a mason. But spiritual health is even more important, since these bodies in their present form will not last forever. Our souls will. Uh, we should also note here that Luke makes this comment about Jesus' strength as a child in a day when many children died in infancy and in early childhood. Uh, early birthdays were considered important milestones. Uh, children that did not grow strong, children that were frail or sickly, they often did not live to see adulthood. And so, it is part of God's favor upon this child that Jesus as a child was healthy, strong, robust. And then we see that Jesus grew in wisdom. In scripture, wisdom includes a reverence for God and a life and and a manner of life that honors God. It means that Jesus, even as a boy, was thinking, speaking, and acting with regard for God and with a regard for God's principles. This is what every parent should desire for their child. This is what every child should be pursuing. It is better to be wise than to be rich, or to be popular, or to be cool. Wisdom is what marks out the choice servants of God. Wisdom is what is prized in heaven itself. Wisdom brings great joy and peace because those who are wise are able to be a blessing to others. Jesus' relationship with God his Father was deepening as he grew. Jesus' relationship with his Father was strengthening as he grew. And out of that relationship, he was living with a sense of honor towards God and a, sort, a, a kind of righteousness and, and kindness towards others. Parents, if our kids get into the best college or become athletic stars or even if they one day make millions of dollars, but they are still fools before God, we have missed what really matters. Let's make sure that we are aiming for the right thing, that we are teaching our children to aim for the right thing. Use the book of Proverbs. It is invaluable in this regard. The aim of parenting is that our children would be wise, a holy reverence for God, a regard for His principles, walking quorum Deo before His face. Let's close by noting where Jesus' growth in strength and wisdom came from. They were both expressions of God's favor upon Him. Uh, The word here is charis, sometimes translated as grace, other times translated as blessing, other times translated as favor. But at its core, The word refers to the joy of God and how God takes joy in doing someone good. And so here we have God, the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Spirit, joyfully blessing the incarnate Son. And so here's Jesus as a child, full of the Spirit of God. And it's God's blessing upon Him that's causing Him to grow. So what is the application? Well, you should pursue strength, and you should pursue wisdom, but you'll only have as much progress as God gives. So seek His face. Seek His face. Listen to God. Learn from Him the habits and patterns that He has instituted that will lead you towards wisdom. Put those practices into practice, but then do so while... Wrestling with God in prayer, seeking his face, saying, God, will you make me more and more of a blessing to others? God, will you use my coming to church on Sunday to make me wise? God, will you use my time in Sunday school? God, when I come on Wednesday nights, will you use those Wednesday nights to make me wise? God, when I open my Bible each morning at home or when I have my prayer time with my family, God, when I, all of these patterns, these habits that God has given us, pursue them. They are the path to wisdom but also seek his face because you'll only grow as much as your father permits. And he's eager to bless, but he always blesses in response to the prayers of his people. One last application. Remember that all that was happening in the life of Jesus as a child to contribute to his growth and development was also being done for your sake if you're a Christian. God was at work when Jesus was a child to develop him into the righteous, compassionate, bold, tender-hearted son of man who is now your Savior and your Good Shepherd. Jesus is the lover of your soul, your refuge, your fortress. He is your bridegroom Dear Christian, we ought to marvel and thank God that 2,000 years ago in this little teeny village called Nazareth, there was a little boy and God was at work in him then for your sake. And if you're here and you're not united to the Savior by faith, turn from your sins and trust Him. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not a boy anymore. He is a man. He is a crucified, risen, ascended man, crowned in glory, reigning over all, and he is willing and able to save all who come to him. And he will bring you safely into heaven. So let us trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.